give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open spaces that I love. Don't fence me in. I wanna be by myself in the evening breeze. Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees. Send me off forever, but I ask you please. Don't fence me. All right, let's do some uh, mail from listeners. We got a rather terse comment from Niles about some comments made on last week's show about the new. <laughs> changes, shall we say, at Sacramento Airport, Sacramento International Airport, which is now better known as Tegucigalpa International, which although it enjoys an international reputation as being one of the world's crappiest airports, um, well, I don't know, Sacramento may be making an effort to catch up, not from the terrain, which poses no problem, as it does in Tegucigalpa, but from its, quote, improvements, unquote. At any rate, Niles said, I know you were expressing your, quote, opinions, unquote, but you shouldn't mislead your listeners with false information regarding the new SMF Terminal B. There is a parking structure directly next to Terminal B that is linked to the terminal via an elevated covered walkway. It's not complicated. If anything, it's easier to park at Terminal B than it was before the new terminal was built. Well, let's just say I have my doubts about that. And as part of our continuing series on let's take a look at the debacle of the International Airport, we invite back to the program our good pal, Nancy Yamada. Welcome back, Nancy. Thank you, Doug. You are uh, someone who travels quite a bit by air and has to use uh, our International Airport, do you not? That's correct. Well, I'd like to just know uh, what your take is on the, quote, improvements, unquote, that have been made so far. It's ridiculous. Actually, the first day they changed over was the first time I went to the new airport. You were there on day one? Yes. Mm. I wouldn't say it was seamless, but there were lots and lots of people about, I don't know, every 20 yards with clipboards helping people and directing them where to go. Yeah. Well, sometimes it might be good to put signs up to tell people where to go. That's something you don't need as many clipboards and people if you do that. I think they were trying to be consumer-friendly. Well, maybe, but I don't think they succeeded. Now, what do you, what do you think about Niall's comment that uh, the parking structure is actually uh, easier than it used to be? Because I, I used to think that when you parked and walked across or parked and went up or down a, one set of stairs, it was pretty easy to get there, and it looks like now everyone has to be funneled up to, what, the fifth floor and then walk over? You know, I don't even remember. I, I do just remember eventually navigating there, but by no means is it any easier than the prior terminal, I think Terminal B or whatever the former Southwest Terminal was, where when I was running late, I could just park across in the structure and jet across the street instead of trying to navigate myself in the parking structure and then figuring out how to get to the other terminal and then having to take the little, the what do you call those things, the trams? The uh, people mover. People movers, yes. Someone had people mover envy. (laughs) <laughs> Apparently. I don't know if they got a federal subsidy for that. It's ridiculous. I see no reason why it was built. It's not a very long distance. And I don't know. Wasn't it a month ago or so where they um, a lot of people missed their flight because the people mover was uh, non-functional? Well, it wouldn't surprise me. I don't know how long that distance is, but it doesn't seem very far. It seems like you're uh, waiting longer to board it than it is to get to your actual destination. And I must say, we, we did read a letter uh, when, it, when there was first the splash in the bee about uh, the new terminal, about someone saying that when he got off and took a look at the rabbit, 
his comment was, I guess people arriving to Sacramento now will take one look at that and think, man, what kind of podunk town have I arrived in? Your comments on the rabbit? Well, I have to d- disagree with you there. Okay. Uh, the way you were speaking of it, I thought it was going to be this some horrific uh, giant you know, porcelain and blue bunny, something that my mother or grandmother might have sitting on a coffee table. I mean, it's nothing that I would have in my living room, nor would it even fit in my living room. But you'll have it in your international airport. I would. <laughs> As somebody else's living room. All right, well, stick around. I think I'm going to read some comment, at least one comment here from a person on Yelp, and then we can, we can analyze that. Michaela G. had the following to say on Yelp. I fly a lot for work, and I've spent many, many hours in airports. The new Sacramento Terminal B is probably the worst I've been to. Actually, I take that back. The Venice Marco Polo Airport is worse. She goes on. Terminal B is a nightmare, even worse than the older Terminal B. In architecture school, we were always taught that if your building needs signage for things that should be apparent, it's a failure of a building. This terminal falls into this failure category. If you get dropped off in the second level, it's not so bad. The ticket counters are right there. But if you park in the lot and take the shuttle in, it drops you off on ground level, and there is one sign immediately inside the door telling you to go to the escalator that's hidden off to one side, which is blocked from view by a massive column. If you miss that sign, you're lost among baggage carousels because there are no other signs in the center area. The up escalators are to your left, but you only see the back underside of them. So you don't realize... It's the escalator, and so someone goes over there. I think that pretty much squares up with my observations of little signage. How about yours? You know, I travel really light, so I have no, uh, you know, I haven't been in the baggage area, or, I, you know, I just went from the parking structure. But actually, what I, I think what I did was just uh, follow the traffic. <laughs> Somebody was being led around, and I just followed the traffic. Well, Michaela goes on. I guess the tram is cool, but it... Fits only like 20 or 30 people with all their stuff. The track isn't even long enough for the automated voice to finish the little safety bit. (laughs) The tram is a waste of money, in my opinion. All the artwork in the terminal is really weird, as if the terminal was supposed to be a modern art gallery. Why a giant red rabbit? I mean, I love rabbits, but I don't get it. She goes on. If you're picking someone up, it's no better. As an arriving traveler, there's no obvious passenger pickup or two parking shuttles type signs. Saying east exit means nothing to someone not familiar with the area. So you just kind of have to guess. Then the exit doors are numbered weird. Door one and three are on one side, two and four on the other. But if you're the one with the car, the directional signs say east pickup area and west pickup area. If you pass up the first pickup area, you will loop around to the second. But if your passenger ends up in the first pickup area, There's no easy way to get back over there, and you have to basically drive all the way around the airport again. One of those, I can see it, but just can't get to it kind of things. (laughs) Well, I think Mr. McMillan can verify that uh, there's some truth in that when you went to pick me up, wouldn't you say? Anyway, Nancy, I think we may have whipped uh, this dead horse quite enough for today, but uh, I'd say you and I are pretty much in agreement that the new airport is kind of a debacle. I would agree. Although it does appear that they have much nicer restaurants than the other terminal. Although I haven't been, I, I can't recommend them at all because it's not as quick to get from my car to the, the gate. I haven't had an opportunity to actually stop at any of because these restaurants. Because you're pressed for time now. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> 
Well, Nancy, we're going to have you follow up uh, in the future about the whole Occupy movement. I understand you've been in a meeting where there's going to be something taking place on March 5th, Occupy the Capitol. you have to come on next week's show and, and, and fill us in about what that'll be about. I'd be glad to. Thanks, Doug. I want to ride to the ridge where the West commences. Gaze at the moon until I lose my senses. I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences. Don't fence me in. Don't fence me in, no, no. Don't fence me in. All right, since we're talking about Sacramento and bad ideas, uh, I want to refer to the Sacramento Bee front page, Monday, February 20th. Matt Weiser does some pretty good reporting. Been doing some excellent reporting about the attempted water grab, but I was somewhat dismayed to see the subheadline attached to the piece. The headline was Delta Tunnels, Huge Plan with High Cost. The subheadline was Project Could Save Fish and Habitat. Its hurdles are massive. I hope Matt didn't write that uh, subheadline because we've been asking the question on this show for, I don't know, what, two years now? The question is How can a project save fish and habitat by removing water from the system? Now, I, I had an aquarium for 20 years. And I will say, it never once occurred to me during that two-decade period that if the water got bad and the fish were in trouble, that what I should do would be take more water out of the aquarium. But hey, maybe I'm not as smart as some people. If you're smarter than me and know how you can pull this trick off, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We will read your response on the air. And we'll do that whether it makes any sense whatsoever or not. And of course, as this month is drawing to a close, we may finally see an end to the long, long toothache that's been plaguing the greater Sacramento area. That would be the issue of the Sacramento Kings. There, of course, have been some complaints from the ownership about the facilities in which the team plays. Yes, it appears that we're, we finally may see an end to this, uh, this dispute. Like the special piece uh, to the Sacramento Bee by Mark Paul on February 19th, titled, Don't Succumb to Extortionists, Arena Won't Transform City, said Mr. Paul, formerly the deputy editorial page editor of the Bee. Supporters of a public subsidy for a new Kings Arena tell us the choices about who we want to be. I don't buy the premise. Twelve tall guys in baggy shorts don't define a city. But I understand the rhetorical strategy. When the facts are against you, make the argument about emotion and frame the question to make the other side look small. Naysayers, old grumps, people without imagination. The real issue is more prosaic. Is plowing $200 million into an arena the best way to use scarce public money? In fact, I'm sorry Nancy was just let go out the door because she sent uh, an email a week or two ago quoting the Huffington Post about the ongoing King's saga that said in the span of less than a year california's capital has cut public workers closed public facilities and now is contemplating a plan to liquidate public assets to hold on to its nba team nancy noted at the time that sentence pretty much says it all sounding off on the same topic was bruce myman in a special to the b a couple days after mr paul's article his premise is that uh, the real irritant in this case is not about what's in the cards for Sacramento, but more that we're being played by a card shark. Card shark in question being NBA Commissioner David Stern, who Bruce describes as playing everyone like a fiddle. 
He said it's practically NBA policy. Build an arena, you'll get your team. If not, they can leave, outsourcing themselves to the highest bidder. The NFL does this too. Want to host a Super Bowl? Build a new facility. Just ask Indianapolis or New York. And you have to admit, I'm puzzled by the math on this. They talk about diverting $200 million in parking revenues to keep the Kings, but they make $8 million a year on parking. So we're going to take 20 years of parking revenues and give it to an NBA franchise? But by far my favorite uh, little item in this whole controversy was a little piece from the B by Dale Kassler, which noted the following. The Sacramento Kings stand to lose $8.3 million if their fragile sponsorship with troubled wristband maker Power Balance falls apart. The team filed a claim in U.S. bankruptcy court for $8.3 million, the unpaid amount left on the naming rights deal that turned Arco Arena into Power Balance Pavilion last year. The contract was supposed to run through 2016, but uh, this relationship got left in limbo after Power Balance filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection last fall. The article notes that Power Balance filed for Chapter 11 after getting buried by demands for restitution from consumers who said they'd been deceived about the supposed health benefits of the company's silicone wristbands. Yeah, these good people at the Kings, they, they sound like a... They sound like real on-the-ball bunch, don't they? We certainly want to do everything we possibly can to keep... Uh, Keep the basketball team local, don't we? I guess crunch time is going to come on the 28th of this month when, they're going to be a city, when there'll be a city council meeting where an assistant city manager, John Danberger, is going to present the city council with this much-anticipated term sheet of an arena deal. According to the News and Review, this term sheet is supposed to outline just how much money the city, the team owners, and the would-be arena operators would each contribute to get the arena built. By the way, in all of this, Radio Parallax's offer still stands. If the Kings need help packing, we think we'll be able to chip in. Remember when the Kings had a local owner? Well, if you don't, you can check out the East Sacramento News, which I believe is online. Interview in there with Greg Lookinbill, one of the original Kings owners. Pretty interesting piece. And it's always nice to see interesting pieces in local publications, wouldn't you say? Well, we've only got a few minutes left on the show. Let's try to uh, concentrate on some good news, I think, it'd be... Nice plan. As we talk about government and how it sometimes doesn't work, we're relieved to see an opinion piece in the B last month noting that uh, some outdated state boards needed to be retired gracefully. Apparently Jerry Brown was proposing this year to eliminate the California Commission on the Status of Women. He noted in last year's budget message that the commission's statutory goals are worthy, but given the state's restrained resources, this reduction reflects the need for government to focus on its core functions. B editors agreed that at $465,000 a year, the Commission on the Status of Women is probably not one of the state's core functions. This commission was established 47 years ago to promote equality and justice for all women and girls. All right, we've talked about junk in space, and we've talked in the past about space junk and I was somewhat surprised to see that someone is proposing that we go up there, I guess it's the Swiss in this case, go up there and start cleaning it up. Apparently, a top Swiss university, the Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne, announced that they were designing Clean Space One, a sort of vacuum cleaner in the sky, an $11 million one, that would be able to navigate close to a satellite and grab it with a big claw. Thereupon, both will make a fiery death dive. 
piece in the New York Times by Kenneth Chang noted that the Swiss only have two satellites in orbit, each smaller than a bread box, but they are concerned about what to do with them when they stop operating in a few years. They quoted Anton Ivanov. Gee, I wonder if he's a refugee from the Soviet space program. Anton Ivanov said, We want to clean up after ourselves. That's very Swiss, isn't it? This uh, space junk problem is so old that it... Uh, that it even has a name, the Kessler Syndrome. Apparently back in 1978, Donald J. Kessler, who led NASA's Office of Space Debris, first predicted that a cascade effect would take place when leftover objects in space started colliding. Today, Kessler's retired in North Carolina, but is still contemplating the issue and the need to clean things up, noting, the sooner they do it, the cheaper it will be. The more you wait to start, the more you'll have to do. He certainly wished this effort well. Here's an item we've been sitting on for, for three years, noting that babies know this. A little dirt is good for you. A piece by Jane Brody in the New York Times noted that uh, since all instinctive behaviors have an evolutionary advantage or they wouldn't have been retained for millions of years, which, which is not an exact premise, but close enough. Peace notes that the chances are that babies' habits of constantly picking things up from the floor and putting them in their mouth has probably somehow helped us survive as a species. And, Peace notes that there's accumulating evidence that strongly suggests that this is the case. Of course, one of the punchlines of this piece is that most places in the world, people put things in their mouth and they get worms. If you have worms, you're protected from a lot of autoimmune diseases. Things like multiple sclerosis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and asthma seem to be reined in if you have more infections, including worms. This is causing doctors to ask the question, are we too clean? They note that dirtiness comes with a price, but apparently cleanliness comes with a price, too. Basic punchline is they quoted uh, researchers at Tufts University saying that the immune system at birth is like an unprogrammed computer that needs instruction. Researchers said that public health measures like cleaning up contaminated water or food have saved the lives of countless children, but they also eliminated exposure to many organisms that are probably good for us. So there you go. The devil's always in the details, isn't he? All right, a couple final items. First one, we have Millie to thank for sending to us. You might not have expected this, but studies have now shown that drunk fruit fly larvae are able to turn the tables and kill wasp parasites in their bloodstream. Article notes that research done at Emory University reveals that fruit flies, when they're uh, in fermenting fruit, may ingest a fair amount of alcohol. The article notes that this idyllic existence on a booze-soaked piece of fruit is often disrupted by parasites, including wasps that lay their larvae in the larva of the fruit fly. If untreated, the tiny wasps eat the flies from the inside out. But the researchers discovered, though, that the flies use their naturally high tolerance to alcohol to kill off their blood bugs. In the study they conducted, when the wasps tried to lay their eggs in fruit fly larvae, Ingesting food containing 6% alcohol, the wasps are less likely to lay eggs. Presumably, said the researcher, because they are feeling bad. Adding that if you dissect open a fly that was fed alcohol food, the wasps were obviously dead. In a lot of cases, the internal organs in the wasps had fallen out the wasps' anus. To which we would add, and you think you have a bad job. Hey, but doggone it, somebody's got to do it, and I'm glad somebody is. They noted that when infected larvae are placed in a dish with both alcoholic and non-alcoholic food, they actually make a break for the alcohol to reduce their parasite load. After 24 hours, 80% of the infected fly larvae were hanging out in the alcohol side of the dish. 
whereas only 30% of the uninfected larvae were. They noted, we gave them a choice between food with alcohol and food without alcohol, and the infected flies overwhelmingly went to consume the toxic alcohol food. It's as if the flies asked themselves, do I want to suffer from toxic levels of alcohol, or do I want to die from this wasp? Radio Parallax does hasten to add that this research may not have any direct applicability to you if you're pulled over by the police for a suspected DUI. Your reasoning in that case, do I want to suffer from toxic levels of alcohol or do I want to die from a wasp, might not impress the CHP. So what you want? I want bourbon, one scotch, one beer. Well, I ain't seen my baby since I don't know when. I've been drinking bourbon whiskey, scotch and gin. Gonna get high, man, I'm gonna. All right, that about does it for today's program. Our thanks to Nancy Yamada, David Keene, and Gary Chu. They've all been on before, and chances are they'll all be on again. Tune in next week for our talk with Andreas Kluth about his wonderful book, Hannibal and Me. That one's going to be fun. We'll see you then. But I'm sitting out.